0: You know, let me just pray for us uh, before we get going. I just want to make sure that that today the Father truly guides us, leads us, and the Spirit empowers us for what we're about to do. Father, thank you so much for today. God, thank you so much for every person that's here right now. I don't believe anybody's here by accident. And uh, God, we just need to be changed by your word. We need your word to be powerful in our lives today. We need to be different people because of our, our interacting with it. And then, Father, would you release us to be your church in Simi Valley, California, wherever people might be from. In your precious name we pray, amen. Okay, now here's the deal. Yesterday, my kids and I were home alone, and, uh, which is a dangerous thing, I know, you're laughing. Um, but we're sitting there is my son and my daughter and uh, uh, Maxine who she doesn't have a clue what's going on in the life but so we're just we're sitting there and all of a sudden my son looks over at me and he goes dad where does the rain come from and so part of me is always the type of person that I wanted to kind of almost end the conversation so I wanted to say well what happens inside of this cycle is is that but I didn't I stopped and I was like well rain comes from god and he kind of sits there and we're kind of quiet my daughter goes shut up, <laughs> and I go, what, <laughs> and she goes, man, he's got a lot of water, and we just, we just sat around for a little bit, and suddenly I was intrigued, you know, so I look at him, and I go, well, what does that tell you about God, and my son looks at me, and he goes, he must be like this big, <clears throat> and here's the thing, do you know that's who we just sang to? We sang to a God that even a little kid understands how huge he is. I mean, his water is just dumping down. They begin to understand this God that we serve must be huge. But I don't know if you caught it, but right now, God is holding the whole universe together. Every breath you're about ready to take, every move you're about ready to make... I'll be watching. No. <laughs> He's allowing you to take it. I mean, don't you want to be like with my daughter, just go, shut up. I mean, it should be one of those things that just silences us. It's that we have a God that I know for a lot of us, things are in all kinds of different places in life, but doesn't he love us? I mean, doesn't he care about us to even care that right now? I mean, look where we are. We're not exactly in a state of the art facility, but man, God loves us. And last week, what Matt preached through is he talked through God being our Father. And the fact that what a privilege it is, and inside of the story of Ephesians, and for those of you that are maybe just getting here, this is what we've been talking about, you all, and me included, those of us that know Jesus, we're involved in something massive, We're not just involved in this, this thing. We're involved in what God is doing on this planet right now as his kids. And he saved us and made us his own. He chose us in eternity past. And he he then lavished upon us everything that we need for life and for godliness. He, He sealed us with his spirit to make sure that we understood that as his inheritance, he can't wait to come back and get us. I mean, the way the Bible talks about it, do you understand that the Father can't wait to come back and get what is His? He owns us, but He can't wait for it. And the whole book of Ephesians is about this particular story in which God, it's a true story, in which what he's doing is just absolutely amazing. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, we laid out this reality, and then we get to chapter 4, verse 1, and we talked about the fact that here's these amazing, huge truths, but God wants us to live in light of those amazing truths. He wants us to live worthily, to, to live in equilibrium to what these things are. In other words, he wants it to come out of our life, and the thing that hit me this week is... Is that, isn't it crazy that God chose to bind his message, the gospel, the truth, to how we live our lives? Think about that for a second. He chose to bind his message, the gospel, And he chose to show it out of how his kids, how his children, how his body, how his church lives their life. In other words, the greatest apologetic for God, the greatest argument for God is not all these things that we tend to use. The greatest argument for God is how he now empowers his church to live differently in this world. That is the grandest argument. In fact, all through the book of Ephesians, as he talks about these big truths, the reason that he wants these things to come to the surface, the, the reason that he wants these, these childlike behaviors, that part of that family, to come to the surface is because he has wrapped himself to that. He has chosen to display himself. In fact, he calls it the manifold wisdom of God, the church. He's chosen to wrap himself in that as the display of who he is to the world. And that's why when Matt talked about it, these non-family behaviors, thoughtless speech or action jeopardizes what we're about. And this is what we're going to talk about today, is that everything Matt talked about, these behaviors of the family, is that he's about ready to look at us one last time and use this word walk. We've seen it in 4.1, we saw it in 4.17, we saw it in 5.2, and then we saw it again later on in 5.7. But this whole idea of just how we live our lives, he says is so important And in 5, you can go there with me, go to Ephesians 5, look at verse 15, he's going to use this word, and by the way, I'm not going to use the screen today, mainly just because uh, it'll be good exercise for us to get back into our Bibles and actually use our fingers, it'll be fun. It'll be so 20th century. He just as said in verse 14, he used these quotes from out of Isaiah of Of God being this one who's calling his people of of calling them to life and he's talking about this light and he says awake O sleeper arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you and then he says therefore look carefully how you walk the idea of look carefully is so important this this idea that he uses when he talks about to look or to see it, it means this idea of being circumspect it means pulling yourself back from the situation so you can really see what's going on See, too often we get caught up in the forest for the trees and what Paul wants to make sure that we understand is is that in this walk that we live in, you can't live it flippantly and you can't live it by the seat of your pants. In other words, he's going to say it requires this ability to be circumspect, to pull yourself back from the situation so you can gain accurately what's going on. In fact, he usually connects it with this word carefully, which means to, to, to make sure every last aspect of it is understood. Now, we, we kind of live in a church today that doesn't do that. We've kind of gotten into this mentality of just kind of, you know, do whatever you want, just, man, we're just going to let the Spirit lead wherever, and we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit, that actually when Paul talks about the Spirit leading, you're going to see this. He's going to use words like understanding and wisdom. He's going to talk about this idea that it's not disconnected from the faculty of, of understanding, the faculty of thinking, the faculty of, of really wrestling through what life is supposed to be about. In fact, the whole point of four one up to this point has been in fact Paul's chastisement is that we don't think through things enough the greatest thinkers on the planet should be Christians because we think about the things of God that's huge and what he's going to do when he connects it to it he's going to talk about the things that we shouldn't do he's going to lay out these, this pattern of things we shouldn't do and he's going to lay out this pattern of things we should do. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to break them apart today so you can see this. And at the very end, he's going to connect it to the Spirit in this really just fascinating way, the way he goes through it. But let's do this. Let me just show you first these first things because it's going to become, become very important, this idea of circumspect and how we're supposed to live. And, and, and here's a, th- a thought that I had. The thing about life he's going to put in here is that life can be extremely dangerous. Um, I love to go backpacking, and I'll never forget one time I went. Uh, uh, actually, this time I went mountain bike riding up above uh, uh, Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And we took a guy with us from sea level, and we got on. We just had our shorts and our T-shirts on, and we never thought that in July it would start to snow up at ten thousand feet. But we're biking along and going like crazy, and all of a sudden, this I had come from um, from a higher elevation, but this guy that came from Minnesota. He's starting to labor in his breathing, and then as he starts to get really worn out and tired, in comes just this massive snowstorm. And I'm like, okay, we're getting down. And so we kind of pull off, and we're trying to get our clothes on, and all of a sudden this guy that's with us, not only is he fatigued, but I don't know if you've ever seen somebody go into the onset of hypothermia, but all of a sudden he was saying bizarre stuff. And I remember looking at the friend with me and I said, one of us goes down to go get help because one of us needs to stay here with him because there's no way he's going to ride single track down to the bottom of this mountain. And I sat up there with him and it was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I just watched this guy as he started to lose his mind almost because he was so tired and so worn out and so cold. And in fact, he even saw this. Lately, I saw this thing. uh, A guy in April 2003, he went uh, hiking back through some caverns, uh, or back through some uh, canyons in uh, Utah, a guy named Aaron Ralston. And as he's walking through it, a a boulder, an 800-pound boulder shifted. I don't know if you remember this, but what landed on him? The boulder landed on his arm. Did you see that? And he actually had to amputate his arm in the middle of it. Now, here's the key to what happened with that, though. And he even said this. I'm watching this thing going, first of all, who in the world would ever cut off their arm? But then I realized after four days, any one of us might do that. He said, I violated the cardinal rule of going into the outdoors. I went alone. Now, the thing that Matt was speaking to last week, which is so important, and I would say this, the thing that Christians violate the most is they try to go at this life alone, we were not designed by God to go apart. In fact, that's why he talks about this church that he is forming that is going to have leaders and people that are going to be equipped and trained is that, we, that in order for us to truly be the church, we need to be together or else we're going to begin to manifest these behaviors that are going to lead to danger. Now, here's the first one. Look what he says in here. Look at verse 15. This group of people that he's talking about are not to be, and he uses this word, unwise, unwise. Now, unwise is a a word that, that comes, obviously, disconnect un from it, wise, meaning opposite of wisdom. Wisdom, whenever the Bible talks about it, is the idea of correct knowledge brought to skill in the life of a person. So in other words, it's not just correct information, but it's correct information that then is lived out. It has a skill to which it's lived out. And when he talks about this, he connects it with this idea of this unwise person. Look at verse 16. The reason that the unwise person needs to be careful is because at the end of verse 16, he says, the days are evil. See, here's the thing I don't think we realize when we think we can live this life alone without the body, without believers in our lives. There is a real devil, a real Satan out there. He heads up this world, he, he heads up minions of, of other angels, and he's a roaring lion, he talks, it's talked about elsewhere in the Bible, that is seeking to devour whomever he may. In fact, the thing that I think the evil one loves to do is to get that one that is out there on their own and loves to get a hold of that one. And so we live our life just kind of living in this temporary kind of physical world, misunderstanding that because of our naturalistic mindset, we miss the reality that what's going on right now is a spiritual battle of cosmic proportions. Now, here's the good news Jesus wins, he's on his throne, and Satan doesn't do anything without asking permission of God in the first place. But it's real. It's as real as if you went back to like World War II or Vietnam or Iraq. It's as real of a war as that. It's just we can't see it with our physical eyes. But it's happening right here, right now, in this very world all around us. These days are evil. The evil in which it is, and the the, the part about being unwise, as you look at this idea of wisdom throughout the the, the Bible, especially in what's called uh, uh, the wisdom literature... Is that the problem in this world, though, isn't Satan? The problem isn't his minions. The problem is me and you. Because at the core of it, our biggest problem is our heart, and the thing that Satan loves to go after is he loves to go after you, and look at you, and tell you how wonderful you are, and get you just focused on you. In fact, I would say the reason that we're so depressed in the United States today is not because we need more medication, but because we're way too focused on ourselves, and Satan loves it. He gets me focused on individualism. I'm the center of the universe. He gets me focused on materialism. I am what I own. In fact, the way he talks about it in Proverbs 1, Solomon looks at this this young man, which is probably his son, and he says, son, you are so simple. And son, what happens is going to happen to you if in your simple mindset you don't gain wisdom, the outcome is going to be you're going to become a mocker In other words, you're going to become arrogant. You're going to look at everyone else that is pursuing wisdom and you're going to shake your fist as if somehow you know something about it. But son, you've got to understand something. The next outcome in this devolving spiral is you'll become a fool. And the way that he talks about a fool, look at it. He does this in verse 17. He says, not only are you not to be unwise, But the idea in verse 17 is, therefore, do not become a fool. It's not do not be selfish or foolish. It actually should be better translated. Do not become foolish. The idea that Proverbs lays out about this fool is he's careless. He lacks understanding, doesn't even want to know understanding. He despises wisdom from God. He has no dependence upon God. He is arrogant. He's presumptuous about life. He lacks discernment in any type of practical living. He tends this tendency to go back to these stupid ways, like a dog going back to vomit. You'll see it in that kind of a way. And the thing that he's going to talk about is, do not let yourself become this fool, or to get into this condition of becoming foolish. And he's going to put it together this way. Look at verse 18. Why, Paul? He's going to use the next do not. When he talks about this, he says, And do not get drunk by means of wine, for that is debauchery. See, the reason he pulls in wine here has everything to do is he's, he's laying out this cascading thing that he's been doing since the beginning of chapter 4 of just this the Gentile or the person that doesn't know God that's not a part of a people of God that just absolutely is careening towards what he talks about in 4.17, this whole idea of just pointlessness to life. It's just absolutely careening down and the thing that he chooses of all of them to explain it and proverbial literature or, or wisdom literature oftentimes uses this is that drunkenness is this symbolic of the height of folly is that once in your life you have so gotten to the point where you allow yourself to become the drunkard you have become the epitome of the fool in fact Paul even talks about it go with me to Romans 13 he talks about drunkenness this way and we're going to kind of connect it back into what, what Matt talked about last week Romans 13 Look at verse 12. He talks about this idea of the night being far gone and the day is at hand, meaning that this, this world and its system is passing away and this is the day, the day that Jesus will return. It is just Then he says this, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies. And look, what here's this word, Drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. In other words, that's the, 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 the means, that's what darkness was like. Matt talked about that last week, is this idea of, that you used to be this child of Satan, but now you're a child of God. That doesn't mark your life anymore. He also, just a few pages on the other side of, of uh, Ephesians, look at First Thessalonians, the way he talks about drinking. First Thessalonians 5. Look at verse 5. He's going to be much more, uh, seems like what he's talking about throughout the book of Ephesians in this particular text. 1 Thessalonians 5, look at verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of night or darkness, that's not who we are. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. Here's the word he's going to connect to this idea of drunkenness. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who drunk are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on, and he's going to talk about this whole idea of the armor of God. What he's trying to say is, is that we literally, once we start to go down this path, we devolve into this absolute foolishness that's epitomized by drunkenness. You could have replaced it with any other idol, by the way. Like, I think the text is totally open to that. You could have picked the outcome of following greed. You could have picked the outcome of following sexual desire. You could have picked the the outcome of any one of those things because what he's about to show us is this idea of debauchery. Isn't that a cool word? Debauchery. I took penicillin for it. I'm okay. But even the word sounds, ooh, debauchery. The idea is, is, in this cascading, when he talks about debauchery, especially like out of proverbial language when he talks about this. In fact, in Proverbs 26, he talks about this archer that, that just kind of flings arrows wherever. This person that devolves to that point and gets down to this, this absolutely terrible point where they are, they are now taken away by wine is that they just become this person that's dangerous to everyone. Those of you that have struggled with alcohol in your past, you know how dangerous you were. What's crazy is, is that those of you that have struggled with alcohol know how dangerous you are, but sometimes because we don't focus enough on other sin, we don't understand that every person that devolves to this in any type of sin is dangerous. In fact, in Proverbs 23, it says, this person will bring everyone to ruin. They have a complete loss of direction. There's unrestraint. They're wasting their life to gratify their own sensual desires. But let me tell you something. Those of you that know Jesus, that's not you. This world has no hope, but we do. And what Paul is about ready to do here, this is so important, while he talked about this cascading thing, and he wanted to do that, he wanted us to get to the end of that and go, ugh, because he's going to get to the end of this one, and he's going to start up here, and he's going to say, but let me tell you about being wise. He connects it back into this idea of the day. In fact, if you go back up to verse 15, he's going to say, look carefully how you walk, but he's going to connect it now to this idea of wisdom, and oftentimes we, we leave this idea, but in the, book of, in, in the book of Ephesians, wisdom is a huge word that just flows all through the text of Ephesians. It's this new lifestyle that we're now a part of. In fact, the, the way that he explains it in Ephesians 3 is, is that this church is the manifold wisdom of God. In fact, way back in Ephesians 1, he talks about it that when God started this whole thing, when He, when he chose to choose us and to make us His own and send His Son and, to, and then to send His Spirit to accomplish this task, it said He did it with wisdom. All the way through the book of Ephesians, the plan of God is wise, it's right. In fact, all throughout Old Testament literature, you'll always see them beckoning back to what God is doing, what God is doing, connecting it with this idea of wisdom. In other words, God and what he's doing and carrying out his plan, he knows what he's doing and what he's beckoning us to is to join me. Those of you out there, don't be the fool and choose your own path. I wrote this story. I know this story. I designed this story. I designed you. And to operate in a way outside of this, you were the fool. But when you operate in such a way that I designed this story, watch out. He's going to connect it in a neat way after that. He's going to pull it all together. And especially when you look at uh, the way he talks about this wisdom, he says not only that, but making the best use of your time in verse 16. See, not only is it wise, but now you have the capacity, the idea is, is to redeem time or to make the best use of time. See, on this one person, this this devolving plan that we talked about that started with the unwise, they waste everything that God's given to them. But how many people get to their end of their life and wish they could redo things? Aren't there a ton? That's why Paul says, don't get to the end of your life and do that. The idea of making use of your time, these days are evil. In other words, now, it's not, also it's not that Christians are supposed to cower and to sit back and wonder, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? In fact, what Paul says is that in Ephesians, this group of people have been absolutely conveyed upon this world, brought into this, uh, this whole world of darkness so that we might show this world of darkness what it looks like to redeem time. Because as we make the most of this time, the world looks in on it and understands what is the heart of God and the plea of God. And he says, not only do I want you to do this, not only do I want you to invade this age and and how you you look at time and how you address things, but he says, look, I also want you to be of understanding. Look down at verse 17. We're not to be foolish, but we're to understand what the will of the Lord is. When he talks about understand, it isn't just that I would hear it, and this is what I mean. This, This word has within it this idea of meditating and thinking. See, so the reason the Old Testament uses this concept of meditation is, is that you're not supposed to just flippantly skim over the surface of something God has said, but you're just spend time and think about it. And I've used this illustration before. But this wisdom that he's talking about is not to be taken as like candy where you just shove it down your mouth. It's a good steak. I mean, when's the last one of us that just mowed a steak? I mean, last time I ate a steak, man, I cut that thing and the juices came all over the place and I put it in my mouth and I chewed and I chewed and I chewed and then I swallowed it and did one of these. Mm. And then I cut off the next piece except this time have you ever eaten a t-bone you know on the one side it's good but then there's that other side that's just all kinds of nasty good and you just cut into that and you just let it savor in your mouth mm. we have donuts in the back for five dollars each This idea of understanding is to ponder and think like that. Bring all the juices out of it. But it's understanding not just to cognitively, uh, uh, mentally go over and over in your mind just so you feel good about yourself, but it's so that you might understand how to live it. The way he connects it to it is this idea of the will of the Lord. And it's this idea that I talked about with wisdom is that whenever he talks about the will of the Lord, he uses it in chapter one. He also comes back to it in chapter three, this idea of the will of the Lord is that it's what God's doing on this planet. See, I think when I used to teach the will of the Lord, I used to think, you know what? Do whatever you want and ask God to come along. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's actually talking about is you need to think about what God's doing, understand what God's doing. The reason we're a people of the book is we're looking into this book and we're understanding what has God done from beginning to end and how is it that I bring my life into that story, not ask God to come into my story. To understand the will of the Lord is to understand not only what he is doing, but the part that I'm to play in what he's doing. And then Paul connects it right after that, after he talks about this idea of, of making my life understand, make sense inside of this overarching story. Then he finally comes to this big statement that we're going to get to. Now, he's talking about it from the standpoint of wisdom and understanding, and now he's going to throw in this statement in verse 18, which is this, but be filled by the Spirit. In the same way that that we talked about with with wine, we're filled by means of wine. In other words, the the, the way that Paul's talking here is not that we would be filled with the Spirit. In other words, we're not this little love cup that God is trying to fill with the Spirit. In fact, he's not even trying to to talk about this individually. He's not talking about it from the standpoint that that how does this apply to me individually because his whole argument from the very beginning is, is that God, via the power of His Spirit, wants to do something unique amongst a group of people. Now, I'm not saying the Spirit isn't in each and every one of us individually, but he's about ready to make a massive, massive argument when he talks about this idea of filling. He started way back in 123. Go back there. Look with me real quick. In 123, this idea of filling. Where did filling begin? Let's start in verse 22. This idea of filling is, is, and he put all things under his feet, that being Jesus, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body? Here's this word, filling, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And the thing we talked about when I taught through that text is, is that Jesus Christ is filling his church with himself so that he might be displayed to the world. Not only does the Spirit do that, but in Ephesians two, he's going to talk about it at the very end. Look at verse uh, uh, twenty-one. He talks about this whole idea of this structure being joined together and to grow into a temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now, not only is this body one that is to manifest Jesus Christ to the world, but the Spirit is literally building it together in such a way that God would come and make himself at home here. The idea is is looking back to Old Testament literature in which when God came into the temple, he filled the temple with his glory at that point. Is that God's church is to be this this holding place, this place in which God's glory, God's manifestation, God's goodness comes down to bear upon this world. He also talks about it in 3.10. Go there with me. Just a few pages over maybe, or maybe a page. He talks about it and he says, Look, so that through the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Oops, I missed one. What did I miss? See, that's what's so good about the 9 o'clock service. You always get the uh, unedited version. (laughs) Ah, I know why. 3.19. There we go. 3.18. He talks about this idea, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, look at this, That you all, y'all, if we were in the south, y'all may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now think about this. What God's wanting to do is, is he's created this group of people in which Jesus Christ comes and he fills them and he makes it, he makes a home inside of them. And then not only that, but the spirit of God now comes in and and builds this church together in such a way that God comes and dwells in it. And the whole point in 19 that Paul is going to pray about is that this group of people then would be this one that absolutely manifests God in a unique way where he, when they're filled with the fullness of God, they express him in that kind of a way talks about these elders in chapter 4. They're supposed to join God in what he's doing because in verse 10 he says, He being Christ who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. Look at this. That he might, here's our word again, fill all things. Verse 12. He talks about it this way. The leaders within the church are equipped the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of stature, and here's this word, of the fullness of Christ, or, in other words, that Christ would become mature amongst that group of people. Now what's he saying? The spirit of God is seeking to make manifest the fullness of God in this world. Through us. Through us. In other words, when the world looks here, what they should see is, is God is there. And do you get what a privilege it is that while the world is careening off into futility, God is doing so different of a thing through his church? He is building her and shaping her. In other words, now, now careening into destruction, God is doing a work in which he's developing her and molding her and shaping her, not so that any of us will receive glory, but that after he has done his work within the church, as God's people have done what they are supposed to do to have this understanding and this wisdom, in other words, the joining of man and what God's doing, the manifestation that comes out is that God has proclaimed to the world. That's what you're a part of. That's what I'm a part of. And the results, he says this, the result of being drunk with wine is one thing. But look what happens in verse 19. What is the result of being filled with the Spirit? And I love this. We begin to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, seeking and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In other words, while one degrades into that that marksman that's flinging arrows all over, we start to sing Has anybody ever had just something so great happen to you that you started to sing almost? I'll never forget one time we we won this tournament as high schoolers, and all of a sudden, have you ever heard the song, We are the champions, my friend. I'm a terrible singer, but I'm like just belting it out. and We'll keep on. I mean, I'm just like yeah. I'm just like absolutely so jazzed and so excited. I mean, when my wife came down the aisle on the inside, I'm just like, dun, 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 dun. I mean, I was just this whole thing that if you've ever had something good happen to you, all you want to do is sing. God created the world to singing. Did you know that? We are designed to be emotive. And when we begin to understand what it means to proclaim the fullness of God to the world, what starts to happen is God's people start to sing. I could tell this morning we weren't too excited about the fullness of God in here. (laughs) Come on, be honest. It was a little dead in here. This whole idea, though, is this group of people, and there's emotion to it. Every good event that's ever happened, either in recorded scripture or throughout time, has come along with song. I mean, remember when they got done crossing the Red Sea? And in crossing the Red Sea, all of a sudden, here comes, here comes Moses' uh, sister. She comes forward, and she's sitting there singing a song. And, and it's not this song like somehow she had written out and planned. The idea was, is that suddenly out of nowhere, she comes up with a song, and they just start dancing and being excited. See, God's people sing, but not only do they sing, the next aspect of it is, is they give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How incredible are grateful people? Matt last week talked about Christians that have only kid syndrome. How depressing are they? Man, if you've ever been around a grateful person before, you just want to absolutely stay around them forever. I remember one time I went and then Francis and I had lunch with Johnny Erickson Tata. And here's a woman sitting there, you know, in her wheelchair, and, and she just oozed gratitude and thankfulness and I just we were supposed to be eating a meal but all I could do is just sit with her and understand her and talk with her and just what flowed out of her was something all different it's this idea that no matter what happens to us even bad things which God is not the author of is that the way that you look at life is is that when the spirit of God comes in and transforms your thinking away from you into him you look at life all different now You're no longer looking at a wheelchair as an obstacle. In fact, now you're seeing a wheelchair as an absolute opportunity to proclaim how incredible God is. And then he says one more thing in verse 21. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The idea is, is this group of people is emotive. They have a song on their heart. They're grateful but at the very end of it, they're looking at God and saying, "Whatever you want to do, I'm willing." The idea of submitting to one another is looking at somebody else and understanding their worth, not their worth, how we tend to look at people, but their worth and how God views them. And the reason that I'm able to submit to them is he talks about it this idea of the fear of Christ. It's not reverence. Reverence seems like almost too shallow of a word. The way that it's talked about there is an understanding that one day I will stand in front of the judge and how I treat that person is so, very important this willingness to come underneath them because I believe I'm involved in something absolutely so huge. Now here's what he's going to do from here on out. I oftentimes find that people are always trying to do big things for God. And the thing I've started to realize is generally why they want to do big things for God is because they more want to get caught up in the adventure than they do want to get caught up in what God wants them to do. Let me repeat that. They more want to get caught up in the adventure than they want to get caught up in what God wants to do because Paul here doesn't end now with this statement starting in verse 22 and say, now, let's go church hell with a squirt gun. He didn't do that. He's going to look at husbands and wives and parents and kids and people at work and he's going to say, now make this manifest there. Bring all this to bear into the normal things of life. See, sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll read about somebody going to this far off distant place and we'll read about somebody doing this incredible thing and we almost feel guilty that I'm not that person. Well, let me tell you something. You don't have to be that person. You need to be who God's designed you to be. And when you understand who God's designed you to be, now into every fabric of your life, whether it's in your marriage or with your family or in your work relationships, just make God huge there. And be around these other believers that that are a part of it as well. In fact, the way he's going to talk about it is with husbands and wives and with parents and kids and and with masters and slaves. The way that he's going to put it all together is just this way in which, look, out of this excitement to which God has done in your life, bring it to life there. He's not trying to get us involved in the next big thing. I mean, yesterday, I, I don't know how big it was for my kids and I to sit around and talk about rain. I think it might have been huge I think it might have been huge That my little girl Looked at me and said Shut up As I changed the diaper On the little one that we have Some people might go Oh my gosh It's just changing a diaper No it's not It's so much bigger than that It's not just going to work It's not just existing there. It's not just coexisting in our homes. It's not just going to these various things. You've got to understand something. When he says redeem the time, what God's meaning by that is is that every single moment is important. Every last moment. And the thing about God's people is we understand that and understanding that we can't wait to bring all that excitement for what God's done in our lives to bear in that. And then we come back here every weekend And we celebrate, amen? Okay, now, one last thought. Do you believe you're involved in something big? Think about that for a second. Do you believe you're involved in something big? I don't care what it is without going to Africa or South America or any place like that, I'm not even talking about that yet, without losing your life at this point because sometimes I think it's easier to die for Jesus than live for Jesus. Do you honestly believe that you're going to leave today and along with other believers be involved in the greatest thing on this planet? Because I promise you, if we lived that way this week, next week's worship service would be all different. We would have a whole new song in our heart if you know what I'm talking about. Amen? Amen. Okay, Father, thank you for this group of people. Would you please do a work in our lives? I beg you. Father, protect us from the decay and the absolute uh, futility of this world. And instead, Father, would you do a work amongst us would you cause us to, to, be, to look at this world in wisdom? Would you cause us to look at this world in understanding? And then, Father, as we join you in that, as we join you in what you're doing on this planet, would your spirit so fill us with God's goodness and God's glory and God's attributes? Would your sun shine through us? And then, Father, would you create a whole new song at Cornerstone? Would people come in excited to to express to you what you've done in their lives? That, Father, would you please do a work that allows us to not be bored with who you are, but instead, would you allow us to have the wisdom and insight to join you so that we might come back singing, that we might come back with gratitude, that, Father, we might come back and engage and really look at one another and say, Father, anything you want, we'll do. We'll join this group of people in what you're doing on this planet. Father, I don't believe I can do it. I don't believe anyone can do it. I believe the only one that can do it is you. Would you start in the hearts and minds of the people here at Cornerstone? Would you cause us to see every moment as an opportunity in your kingdom and your plan? Father, whether it's doing the most minute things and the most big things, would you please be big? In your precious name we pray, amen.